2: Radio with Brandon Robinson. Who's the number one journalist around when it's going down? You know his name when he hit the town. You want the scoop, better get Brandon. Sports interviews, the only way you understand it. Real talk with the top news. Courtside to the locker room the voice for the nba drafts trades the finals he gonna find a way he's on top he don't never fall some call him scoop some call him mr basketball and ain't nobody else in this lane Just know it's no doubt he's the best in the game radio tv podcast scoop beat i said radio tv Goofy, Goofy Radio. At least says, yeah. What's going on, Mr. Walton? Bill, please. With my Bill. good buddy Steve. Steve and Bill. Yeah, Steve just made a movie. I heard something like that. The lucky yeah. guy, girl,
3: right? Steve is like, yeah, okay, he's got it. <laughs> and he's made a lot of movies, and they've all been really interesting. Okay. And, and I'm hopeful for that to be the case
2: this time around. 30 for 30, ESPN, they yeah. made. Steve directed it. Bill, you are the muse, correct? Well, I'm the guy who
3: sat there in front of the camera and was like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? Here, let's try to fix this. Right. See what love could do. Let's try to find the bright side of the road. Let's ring the chimes of freedom. And let's walk along in the mission in the rain, where some folks would be so happy to have just one dream come true. Yeah, some folks looking for that miracle, but I'm one of those guys who has been sadly faced with the, with the tormented conflict in my life of all the things that I've tried to do but could only do halfway. How are you guys doing today? I'm chilling. Steve, how you feeling?
4: I'm feeling good. Feeling good.
3: Steve, tell me I'm something. The luck- I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I met Steve. I knew of him, mm-hmm. not because he knew of him, but I knew of his work. Right. You know, I'm a big Hoop Dreams guy, mm-hmm. that, that's been my life too. And then, mm-hmm. but my friends at ESPN, and then in collaboration with the NBA, I mean, the two most powerful media companies in my life, and mm-hmm. I mean, these guys are just, they're just driving it every single day. They came to me and said, hey, let's make a movie. I said, oh, no, really? And, <laughs> and I and I said, and I said why? They said, oh, we got some interesting stuff here we'd like to share with the world. And well, say, I don't know anything about making a movie. I've never made a movie before. I've been in movies, but I've never made a movie before.
2: What is your favorite movie that you've been in? Oh, gosh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, that was a, a big
3: role for me. And I, I, I was there because the world was in trouble. Bill Murray called us all together. And he said, we've got to take care of this. And so there we were, up against it. We had no chance whatsoever, but through fortitude, through discipline, through sacrifice, and through honor, and working together to make for a better outcome, we came up
2: with this incredible movie, Ghostbusters, yeah. Steve, let me ask you a question. As a director who has directed and just created masterpieces, how did you guys get work done because there's creative genius, there's energy. Like what was the day in the life of you encapsulating what he was doing?
1: Well, we, uh,
4: we just signed up for the ride. Right. And we, uh, we spent, we spent uh, a bit of time with bill um, as he was in San Diego in his lovely home, but also uh, with him uh, in Portland and some other places. And we just, um, You know, we we sat down with him at regular intervals to talk about different aspects of his life, but also wanted to hang with him some, wanted to go see his mom with him, go see his old coach, um, go to Wallace Park, the great Portland outdoor park where Bill used to play when he lived in Portland. So, you know, we just we just had an adventure, I think, is more than anything.
3: Now, for me, for me, Scoop, it was a challenge. For For Steve, it was a nightmare. Because Steve never really understood what I said at the beginning when, when I've said my whole life that it was I was John Wooden's easiest recruit I became his worst nightmare and I drove the poor guy to an early grave at 99 oh. and so here was Steve who thought he had an idea of what he was getting into and you know when ESPN and the NBA call and they say hey let's do this who was going to say no to those guys, right? And so they had all this archival footage. They had these dreams. They had these visions. And as my wife will tell you, Lori, Lori is the greatest everything ever. She'll just say that, look, man, this is a, a, a tragic nightmare. This is a train wreck going. And so Steve was trying to get on board. I think Casey Jones was the engineer out there. And so here he was, uh learning trying to find out all this different stuff along the way and then the 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 really tough logistical parts of us not living in the same area he lives in chicago and in oregon i live in san diego i only have one home steve has a number of homes and then we had covid uh, which really because this project got started before covid Mm-hmm. And we were just lining everything up and getting all the interviews and trying to do all this work. And and you know when the ESPN came to me and and said, "Look, let's do this." And we have to give great shout outs on, on this program to uh, Marsha Cook, Marsha Cook, who has shepherded this through to the very end. And then on the NBA side, John Horace. These th- these two people who have worked together and. Uh, you know, every one of my teammates, every one of my coaches will tell you that. While I'm very proud, and well, I try to be a, a disciplined and live a life of honor, I'm also very stubborn. And so here it was, you know, I, I I wanted a story. Steve had his idea of what the story was, and so what we all did was we worked together in a in a sense of collaboration, in a spirit of sacrifice, to come Radio. up with a finished product that that. I'm honored and I'm privileged and I'm hopeful will be something that people enjoy. People will, you know, take something from it.
2: Tell me something, uh, Bill. When I was kind of just reading about this DACA, I did not realize um, how much you were intertwined with just civil rights leaders, people that you kind of interconnected with your time, I guess, playing basketball. Who are some of the most remarkable people that you got to meet?
3: It's an endless list, and I want to add Steve James to that because the movies <laughs> that he's made, the movie that the movie that he made, Abacus, which put me over the top mm-hmm. because you know I, I don't, I'm much more of a reader than a movie guy. Because That's of Steve, I've got, in this project, I've gotten a lot more into movies, and I enjoy them immensely. I'm a, a nonfiction, historical biography type reader and consumer of information. The news I get is primarily by reading, and I, you know, I, if there's a huge news day, I'll tune on. You know, I'll tune into the the visual aspects of it. Uh, but what uh, Abacus did for me, you know, with uh, which was the story of Steve James standing up for somebody. a group of people who just got the shaft and that's kind of the way i live my life and i'm the luckiest guy in the world so many great things have happened in my life including all the people that i've gotten to meet and so it was a really uh a a journey for me to try to come back and, and share all that stuff with me because while I try to learn from the past, try to dream about the future. I try to live for today. And what happened in the banking crisis of the 2000s, and what happened with this group of Chinese people, and it just broke my heart. And I was super lucky in my life to be born into a world of hope, opportunity, peace, and love, and books, and music. Greatest parents in the world who encouraged me to live a life of curiosity, exploration, experimentation. And then that just led to all these other opportunities in my life as I was chasing it down. I, I found basketball when I was five. Excuse me. I found my bike when I was five. And that <laughs> opened everything up right. because I like a book. I could go someplace, like a song, I could go someplace that I couldn't get to on my own. Right eight, I found basketball. And then when I was nine, I found Chick Hearn, who was this incredible fountain of life, of the dream, of happiness, enjoying the celebration that I try to make every aspect of my life. And it was incredible because then when I was 15, after finding Chick Hern six years before that, uh, I, I found the Grateful Dead UCLA and John Wooden. Mm-hmm. And then I just kept going. And then, you know, to be at that school, with that platform, with that teacher in Los Angeles, and just so many different things happening every single day, every single moment. And I got to meet, Literally everybody who I wanted to meet. And the guys who I wanted to meet, who I didn't get to meet, were all assassinated. You know, because in in my life, in my lifetime, the people who stood up, like Steve James stood up in Abacus, like hopefully he stood up here with the luckiest guy in the world, when Steve James stood up for Alan Iverson, all those people, they were assassinated. You know, JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. You know these are my heroes growing up and and, and then they're dead and, and then John Lennon gets killed and but uh, and why they get killed because they stood up for the little guy and that's why I'm just so happy that the Denver Nuggets are the best team in basketball right now because forever it. they have been the little guy and they have just been shunted aside for them it's always been talk. They delivered, and I like people who deliver, and I want to be one of those guys, and I hope that I wasn't so much of a nightmare for Steve James that as we move forward past this project that he'll still take my calls. I I know that John Wooden, uh, he was very reluctant to take my calls for all (laughs) the years, but uh, eventually I would get him on the phone now and again. How How did you and John Wooden bury the hatchet? 2B Radio. I realized, scoop, the very first day of uh, my uh, time in the NBA uh, that oh my gosh, this is really different. And you know, <clears throat> I was 21 years old before I ever encountered anyone that didn't have my best interest at heart. And then I joined the NBA. And so, when, I, when I joined the NBA, I was unable unable to play in the game of life. I was injured all the time, so I couldn't play the game that I loved, and nobody believed that I was injured, and then as a lifelong stutterer, I could not explain myself, I could not express myself, and so here I was coming into the NBA unprepared, unsuspecting, and undiscerning, and now... All of a sudden, I'm there, and it's totally different from anything I had ever experienced in my life, totally different from the dream I had, the dream I wanted. And so I realized right then and there that I had made a terrible mistake with John Wood, I immediately went back to him. I apologized, told him sorry for ruining his life, sorry for wasting his time. And then I promised myself and him, too, that I would quit causing him grief and consternation and so i spent the rest of my life, uh, or the rest of his life, because that was 36 years uh, after I left UCLA, that he, he still, still stayed alive. And so I, I, I promised him that I would uh, uh, try to do better, try to be better, and try to do more on, on the bright side of the road. And I, I'm not sure that he ever accepted that or if he ever really understood it. But I tried my best, as I did with this film you know, the luckiest guy in the world. That, that's me. And, you know, so many great things. People have always been nicer to me than I deserve. And so, you know, here I was and now at UCLA. And uh, my very first day there, I found Ernie Vanderway, one of the founding members as a player of the NBA. And so from that point on in the fall of 1970, everything good in my life could be traced to Ernie Vanderway. Now, Ernie Mm -hmm. passed away. So many of the guys in my life have passed away. And so Steve was not able to interview all these people for my life. And, you know, Steve, you know, he came in with his idea of who I am, who I was and what had happened. And I I don't know, we're going to have to let him explain how, how it played out for him with his preconceived notions.
2: Steve, yeah, I was going to ask you that, Steve. How did your perception of Bill change after completing the project? Well, I, you know,
4: I'm only a couple of years younger than Bill, um, so I followed Bill, uh, Bill's career. Um, and I used to, I used to, I, I grew up in Virginia, and I used to stay up and watch UCLA games from poly Pavilion after the late news. I don't and, know. why
3: and Black and white television.
4: I don't. Yeah, that's right. I don't know why they were broadcasting those games back in Virginia, but they were. Um, and so they would come on at like 10 30 at night and out on the weekends. And so I would stay up and watch UCLA and watch bill and Marvel at, at that team and that, and at his performance. So I was a fan from, you so know, as early was, on as I could be, I didn't grow up in San Diego, so I didn't see him play in high school, but, um, uh, so, you know, I, I knew of Bill's career, I knew of the struggles he'd been through, um, but only had a cursory understanding, really, of all that his life had been and his career had been. And so, you know, this project, every film I do is like a profound discovery, you know, um, some of it I, I learn or I get some sense of it from reading, from like reading his biography or reading Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam or you know, other other books that that have featured Bill's life. But you, there's nothing like the the direct experience, of course, of, of just spending the time. You know, we probably talked over the course of, uh, you know, the two years that we were filming. We we probably sat down a dozen times for just interviews. And those are just the interviews. Um,
3: there's only two years it seemed like at least a decade.
4: but you know so uh you know i got i got uh, a much stronger sense of what he had been through both the highs and the profound lows that um you know because he opened up and and really talked about that we spent one interview we spent one interview that ran about three hours just alone talking about the injury it was just the focus of that whole interview was the injuries and the surgeries that he'd had over the years. And that was a three-hour interview, and we still didn't get to it all. So it gives you an idea of, of you know, how much was there to, to learn and understand in this story. And that's why it went from, you know, ESPN originally wanted a standalone film. And, you know, it, it didn't take me long to realize that I really wanted to do something that was more ambitious than that and do a docu series. And so after after a while, I convinced them that that um, that that was the way to go. And of course, when I told Bill, uh, when I told Bill uh, the good news that we were now doing a four part docu series, he was like, what about five? How about six? That was Bill Russell's number. We should do six.
3: Five five was my number on the Celtics because Kevin McHale had already taken 32. I should have played him for it the very first day I got there. Bill Russell was my favorite player. So I went from five hours to six hours, and I wanted it to be longer. And I wanted it to be more about my teammates and more about the people in my life. But... You know, Steve's director, and he, he, you know, and one of the really good things about this whole project is that none of the discussions were acrimonious and none of the negotiations, and they all went totally smooth. And it was fantastic because everybody wanted to have the best project imaginable. And so here we are. And I'm hopeful, hopeful that it's going to be, you know, something that means something to other people because... That's the life that I try to lead. You know, the, the people who I want to hang out with are people that mean things to me. And it, it was sad for me because of COVID and because of limitations and restrictions of time and all this sort of stuff. That you know, three of the most important people in my life did not make the the total film, uh, but they did make the editor's cut uh, available on ESPN Plus. And cool. So- so uh, Lenny Wilkins, who was my first mm-hmm. program coach uh, and was phenomenal. And you talk about somebody getting the shaft. Lenny Wilkins got the shaft. And if you don't uh, ever believe that, read his book, Unguarded. Mm-hmm. Which, Lenny is as classy, as dignified, as professional as they come in life, as nice a person, kind, generous, everything you want in a human being. And, uh, you know, he, he got the shaft in Portland. And I'm responsible for that because I was hurt. I couldn't play and I couldn't talk and I was unprepared. And Lenny took the fall for that. But it's a long list of coaches in the NBA who have been fired because my feet wouldn't perform. My feet wouldn't allow me to play the game that I love. And so here it was. Lenny was the first of those. And that's a heavy burden to carry. And the other guy who got in there um, in the editors got Mickey Hart. And I said, well, I have it. Uh, And he, you know, he He's just uh, there all the time in my life as, as the music plays. And then there's Danny Ainge, you know, mm-hmm. Danny Ainge who grew up in Oregon and Danny Ainge who was a big Blazer fan and Danny Ainge who, you, you know, who would see this whole thing, this whole tremendous team come together in a short period of time because when uh when jack ramsey became the coach when they fired lenny because of me and hired jack ramsey jack got rid of so many different i think there were seven new guys on the team and we won the championship and to this day we're the youngest team to ever win the championship and then i got to know Danny over the course of his life. He's quite a bit younger than I am. And then I got to rebound for him on the Boston Celtics. And there was a lot of rebounds to be had there. And I also got to guard his man. And I also got to inbound the ball to him. And so it was super fun to be with him on that Celtics squad. He was a critical component. I'm shocked. And dismayed that Danny Ainge is not in the Basketball Hall of Fame, but I, I wish they had all made the, the the totality of the film and not just in the director's cut. Because when when they were interviewed uh, for the uh, for the director's cut, they uh, they all did Lenny, Mickey, and Danny. They all did a tremendous job.
2: Treated me nicer than I deserve. We all work in basketball, but I would imagine that we're all also fans of the game. Question for both of you. How much, we were all in the house during COVID, at the, the height of COVID, <clears throat> how much did the last dance change the perspective of how we view basketball as not just a sport, but a lifestyle and the pits and, and turns or the twists and turns of what the day-to-day life is of a basketball player? Scoop B
3: Radio. I'm going to let Steve take that one. He's the movie maker. He's the one who's had the experience with Movie changing people's lives and hopefully he will uh, transition that into roger eber's movie that steve did and, <laughs> and the the transitional nature of life that roger went through yet roger stuck with the whole thing to the very end and uh and i love that bulls team as great as they uh, were and i just uh shocked and dismayed those words are not strong enough to relate my feelings as to the way that Scottie Pippen treats Michael Jordan—that's just not right. But Steve, you talk about the Last Dance and its impact on our world.
4: Well, I think I think the Last Dance was was a terrific docu series that came at the perfect time for American sports fans. Like you said, Scoop. Um, you know, there wasn't any sports being played. Everyone was holed up at home, and and for people, you know, I'm a Chicago guy, so I followed the Bulls and was a big Bulls fan for uh, for for anybody who's a basketball fan, but especially people who were a fan of the Bulls from that time. It you know, it was. Hold
0: up.
4: it was uh you know it was catnip or crack cocaine or whatever you want to call it it was you oh, know it, no. was, it, was <laughs> it was perfect it was the perfect kind of you know thing to to um to watch now you know i i i don't think the series does um you know david halberstam's book on michael jordan is to me is the quintessential um, treatment of Michael Jordan. And he didn't even get to interview Michael Jordan. He was supposed to, but he didn't get to. And if you look, if you read that book, you'll see the the profound influence that I think that book had on the last dance, because it is structured. The series is structured very much like David Halberstam's book on Michael Jordan. So I, I, if you were a huge fan of, the last dance, I urge you to read David Halberstam's book because it's uh, you know, he was a remarkable journalist in every respect, but and and there's probably never been as great a journalist who was such a huge basketball fan and knowledgeable basketball fan as David Halberstam. So um, you know, there's a lot of great there's a lot of great docs out there, a lot of great docuseries out there being made, but the last dance was a really good one that came along at the perfect moment. Um, and I think that that contributed greatly to its its
2: lore. Yeah. Bill, um, you talked about Danny Ainge. Um, I was
3: the broadcaster for those Bulls teams on the national level.
2: The NBA on NBC. And, right. And, and
3: like the right luckiest now. guy in the world, it was a remarkable privilege and honor to have that position and to witness the greatness of that team. And I'm a team guy. I love the team game. That's why I'm super happy uh, with what happened with the Denver Nuggets. Because, you know, the team game, the passing, the the selflessness, that's always what leads to ultimate group dynamic success. And that's what the Bulls had. And they had a fantastic coach in Phil Jackson. They had an incredible city with a – spectacular fan base. And and then, you know, they had all these players, so many of them who were in the Hall of Fame. let see. Tony Kukos Hall of Fame, Jerry Krause Hall of Fame, Scottie Pippen Hall of Fame.
2: Dennis Rodman.
3: Jock Jackson Hall of Fame, Tex Winter Hall of Fame, Dennis Rodman Hall of Fame. And at the end of the day, then you have Michael Jordan, yes, who was the personification of excellence in all things, on and off the court. And, you know, they delivered and you know they played together they played to win and you know the drama was always there and the ability of NBC and Dick Ebersole and Ahmad Rashad and all the guys who were telling the story it was fantastic and uh, you know hopefully that uh that our team here Zach Piper, who was who was the sound man for the film *The Luckiest Guy in the World*, and then uh, Jackson—not Jackson Brown, but but Jackson James—he mm-hmm. uh, was the cameraman, and it was and and then Steve's wife Judy and their other two children, who were very uh, successful in their own right, and 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 the way that they all pulled it together, and we went down to Austin, Texas, for the premiere at South by Southwest, Steve had this, you know, know, I thought it was just a few guys who were working on this film, right? Then we get to Austin and we have this post premiere party and my goodness, it was, it was tremendous. It was like being, you know, at a Grateful Dead concert. There were just all these happy people who had come with a purpose and come with a mission. And then at the end of the day, they were happy. And, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we always want more, and, and, mm-hmm. and that's, that's what I want. I mean, when I read David Halberstam's books, I read them all with the exception of Breaks of the Game. It was just too personal. I don't read about myself. I don't really talk about myself. And that's one of the challenges that that Steve James had with trying to make this film was that, you know, I, I'm a team guy. I I don't, I'm not a self-promoter. I'm not looking for attention. I, I want the team to win. And he, you know, he wanted to tell a story of, you uh, um, self-agulation you wanted to tell a story of that's not true <laughs> of, of, being, of being impressed with my stats sure and, and that's not me I,
4: I i i just wanted to tell the bill walton story whatever that I, was
3: my story on the basketball court is to win the game that's what matters to me and yeah. and my story uh, away from basketball is to try to help as many people as I can, to try to make the world as fair and equitable a place as I can. Scoop and while I continue to run into hurdles, you know, the the difficulties that I had playing basketball, because of my feet, the game itself was was never a problem. I just couldn't answer the bell because my feet were always broken. And then the difficulty that I had speaking, when I talked about the early days of being the luckiest guy in the world, it wasn't until I was twenty-eight that I found Marty Glickman. I found Marty Glickman through Ernie Vanderway and Marty Glickman's own personal story about wish that Steve would make a movie. HBO has already made a movie about Glickman, so I'm not you sure mm-hmm. on that because they do a tremendous job. But Marty Glickman changed my life. nothing, nothing has changed my life more than what Marty Glickman gave to me which was the ability to learn how to speak mm-hmm. I remember when Coach Wooden was so mad on the day that Marty Glickman died because uh Coach Wooden as you know he was you know in his late 90s at the time and I was there with him when the phone rang and Coach Wooden became the king of obituary but at hmm. the end of the interview singing the praises of Marty Glickman this incredible force of nature like few others who changed the world in so many positive ways, but also facing the devastating anti-Semitism, Coach Wooden said to the reporter, I'm really mad at Coach Wooden. I mean, I, excuse me, I'm really mad at Marty Glickman because while well, he taught Bill Walton how to speak, he didn't teach him how to stop talking.
2: Woo! Yeah,
3: that was the headline.
2: Yeah. Let me ask you a question.
3: I don't the headline for the luckiest guy in the world has not been written. And uh, time will tell yeah that's real. what I'm hopeful for I'm you know I, I'm hopeful that that the, the response from my friends uh, has just been overwhelming and it's it, and it's staggering it's staggering because you never know you know life is like a grateful bed concert life is like a basketball game Life is sitting down in front of the camera with Steve James peppering you with all these questions. Like, what are you talking about? You know, why do you keep asking me to explain what I've already said, right? And you just never know how it's going to play out. And to me, it's it's like a bike ride. You know, you go out on a bike ride, you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no Mm -hmm. idea if you're going to die, if you're going to get hit by a a drunk driver you're going to hit by a texting driver you know or or the rain is going to come in or the wind is going to start blowing you're going to have a mechanical you never know and so you just got to be ready and i was not ready when i started
2: do you ever ask yourself look in the mirror or just constantly revisit what if my feet injuries did not happen how much more career-wise would i have accomplished I, i try not to
3: and i don't want to You know, I want to look ahead. I want to see what love can do in the world. I try to live a life of peace and love and share that with other people. And I also want to do the best that I can with what I've got at this moment. Now, over the course of my 70 years, you know, so many great things have happened to me, but also so many things that have happened that have limited me in what I can or could do. What I try to focus on, Scoop, is the things that I can do. And while I have not been able to play basketball in now 37 years, I can still go in the pool. I can, mm-hmm. still, I can still go in the weight room. I can still ride my bike. And I've already done all those things today. I can still read. I can still uh, play the piano. I can still play the drums. And I could still be on a show with Steve James and reminisce about the the fun we had and the challenges that we had and and, and the effort that was put in. Because you know, that's what I asked for in life. Oh like I scared him away already. And, <laughs> and then,
4: I have to that, I have to plug in my computer.
3: As a, <laughs> that's usually done before the show starts.
4: <laughs> I didn't know we were gone this long. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I wanted it to be longer. <laughs> uh, Coach Wooden, as Coach Wooden said, failing to prepare is preparing. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, get some solar panels on that computer, Steve. But it, it was uh, a, a situation in, in my life where I, uh, I have not had any of my limbs amputated. Mm-hmm. I, I'm alive. And there was times in my life that that was that was not in my future, and I'm you know I'm 70 years old. I'm married to the woman of my dreams, who I met 33 years ago, and Lori is the greatest everything ever. Now she's Me not a right thing, now? but I can't think of a better word than everything. So she's remains the greatest everything ever. I'm madly in love with her. We have six children and 14 grandchildren, and you know, and when my spine failed back in '08. Shortly, you know, not shortly, but uh, after that, I found Pat Kilcuney and Ted Roth, who uh, we tried to get part of this film, but that didn't work out there. And but they took over for Ernie Vandewey as the guys who have been looking out for me and trying to help me get to what's next in my life. And I'm seventy years old, and I just found Jerry's middle finger, and so I I am the luckiest guy in the world. It's all happened for me, and now and and. I'm not sure if Steve, to this day, if he believes that I am the luckiest guy in the world, but I believe it, and that's what counts. Because, you know, when you're trying, you're trying to get where you need to go, where you want to go, you know, you gotta have that belief that that this is gonna work. If you don't believe, if you don't have the hope, you know, you know, one of the things that we suffered through with all the hypocrisy and the con artists and the scammers that have been so negative to our world trying to move forward to a better place is their their promotion of the notion that hope doesn't even exist anymore the, you know the promotion of the death of hope that started you know in the in the 1980s You know, when it was just such ridiculous notions of selfishness and greed, and I got mine, and to heck with everybody else. That's not the world that I live in. And so, as we are moving forward here, I believe and I know full well that I am the luckiest guy in the world. I'm alive. Lori's still here, and I'm talking to Scoot and Steve about a movie that Steve just made about the luckiest dude in the world. And I know that Scoot, guy, baby. although that guy has changed quite a bit from the very beginning when Steve was trying to put this film together. And, oh, the the, the people who we interviewed, it goes way back. And it was sad that David Halberstam was uh, was already passed away. He's got some nice clips in there, I believe, if they made the final edit. And then uh, Chick Hearn was dead and Coach Wooden was dead. And, you know, my my first coach, Rocky, you know, all these people, you know, dead in my life. And fortunately, uh, uh, Steve was able to get, he was able to get Greg Lee, Greg Lee, a critical part of my life. And, and Greg has passed away since that interview. And it was very sad and it's changed everything. And Greg had 25 years of physical misery, but on the days that, that uh, that he was able to sit with Steve and, and and try to explain what was going on out there. But I have to give credit to all the different people uh, who, who did take the time and make the effort to make a contribution to this film. Uh, you know, Sam Smith, Bob Ryan, absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Robert Parrish, oh my, the Chief, then uh, Jamal Wilkes and Lucius Allen and Kareem and Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. know Casey Jones and Ren Auerbach are both dead and so you know a lot of you know Jerry uh, Garcia but uh, we should have got John Mayer Uh, we you know we did get uh, Bob Weir and and Steve Parrish from the Grateful Dead but we were under uh, severe limitations in a lot of ways And, and I don't like limitations I don't like boundaries but that's me and I was not the
2: boss on this project Steve you are the boss um Is he the luckiest man in the world? Well, the reason we titled it the
4: luckiest man in the world is because, as this interview has made clear, Bill likes to say he's the luckiest guy in the world. And he says it frequently. And, you know, and he says fantastic a lot, too. (laughs) Um, And, you know, any objective look at his life, even from what he said in this interview, uh, I don't think a rational person would conclude that Bill has been the luckiest guy in the world. He's he's had an injury marred career. He's had he's had plenty of troubles, even you know, uh, even after his career ended, physical things to overcome. So, you know, he hasn't been the luckiest guy in the world. But I think what the reason we title it that is because as he's said here better than i can say it's how he's chosen to live his life and to focus on the things that he has been given and the the things that he has accomplished and the things that he is still able to do and that's what makes him the luckiest guy in the world and that's why we wanted to call the film the luckiest guy in the world
3: and one of the challenges scoop in a project like this is that it's my life and steve has control over the narrative well, mm-hmm. uh, we've had many discussions about my answers to his questions. <laughs> you know, he he was the editor, and and he was doing that. And so, you know, that's where the hopefulness comes in. And you know, one of the challenges was that I'm a deadhead, and Steve is not. And I, I assume Steve you know, has a, a, a wonderful taste in music, but that's his taste
4: and now, actually uh it the the editor on the on the film who did a remarkable job david simpson is a deadhead and that's why that he he had a lot more to do and and bill doesn't remember this cuz i talked to bill so many times but i did ask bill for a list of some of his favorite songs which he did give me and which was was considered in in our whole considered
3: is the right word <laughs> <laughs>
4: No, no, but But here's what I'm happy to report, Scoop. If you go online, and I'm not on Twitter, but I have friends who are, and I have Deadhead friends who are, the response to the film from the Deadhead community has been overwhelmingly positive, and we have heard from so many of them how much they love the choices that were made for the music in the series. We've we've heard that countless times. I was just on a radio show with a deadhead that knows you really well, Bill. That was at a concert with you a month ago, Polly, Polly somebody, um, and he he went out of his San way. San Francisco, say,
3: Pauly. yeah, Polly and Mac and, from San
4: Francisco. Okay, right. Polly, Polly, Polly went out of his way to say, "I can't believe how wonderful the music is in this series. You guys nailed it." So I don't I don't take credit at all for that. I give that credit to Bill's list, but also very much so to my editor David Simpson because you know what, Scoop, I'm a team guy too. I'm a team and, guy too.
3: And we have to and give credit to Marsha Cook and Burke Magner. Marsha,
4: what Marsha Cook did, which was amazing, was is that she went and and got us the music that we wanted, which was no easy task. Um, but Bill helped with that too. It was a it was a team it was a team effort. So what I'm what I'm, what I'm saying about I, I can't believe I'm keeping him from talking, but what I'm saying <laughs> what I'm saying is that this process was a collaborative undertaking. Sure. I I listened to Bill's thoughts and feelings about all of this from every respect. It's part of the way I make films. It's the way I've made films, going back to Hoop Dreams, is, is that I involve the subjects in those films. It is I am not the boss in the sense that you might think when you think of the boss. Frankly, ESPN's the boss ultimately on this. And, 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 and so I, I am a very collaborative team guy as a filmmaker in the way that Bill was as a basketball player And that's the way I've chosen to live my life and the way I've chosen to do my work.
3: And as Steve said, he listened to me, reminiscent of John Wooden's words to me when I would question him about everything.
4: I I made changes that Bill wanted in the uh,
3: sense. About about the cheerleaders, about my hair, about my clothes, about shaving. George Wooden would listen as Steve listened. And then he would finally just roll his eyes and wave me off and say, you know, Bill, it's all fine and good that you think that way, but I'm the coach here. And while That's we've enjoyed having you, we're gonna miss you.
4: That's not true. And
3: if I don't get off this show, I'm gonna miss what's next for me. And I've got to be there because people are waiting. So
2: before you go. Yes, Nikola Jokic. Oh, fantastic. Has, has has have you? He does so many different things. He can shoot. He can. He's the point center of that squad. Have Steve you, James can, is already working on the Nikola
3: Jokic movie. Is and it? So yes, and so here's this remarkable visionary really? artist, Nikola Jokic. He's the starting center. No, who's
4: working on the movie? Steve James. No. And,
2: <laughs>
3: and, and, <laughs> believe me, that's already in the works, and so it's. It's so fun to watch him play because, you know, he's the leader of the band and he does it so many different ways. And the package that he has of physical capabilities, skill level and, and a mind and a heart and a soul is commitment to the team and to winning the games and the way he runs, the way he moves the way he dribbles, the way he passes, his position rebounding, his help on uh, help on the way that he provides to make his teammates the star of the game, and his hands. His hands are just absolutely remarkable. You know, that ball touches his hands, and the ball is moving in a good direction from there. And I just wish that I could do that with my life, that when the ball comes my way, that I could redirect it into a more positive direction, and Nikola Jokic, I love that guy, and and I'm just so happy for him. I'm so proud of him, and because Nikola Jokic is like the rest of us in that you know he's trying to live his life. He's trying to go through and get the job done, trying to be Nikola Jokic, and so many other people are trying to force him into being somebody that he's not. Hmm. And that, that's why I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I, I learned that years ago. And I find myself standing in the middle of the mainstream and Nikola Jokic, the future. And he will inspire so many, so many next great players. And when you talked, when Steve talked about uh, David Halberstam's book, and not love David Halberstam anyway, but one of the books I want to recommend uh, about Michael Jordan is when Sam Smith, who wrote book, mm-hmm. Sam's book, There Is No Next. There is no next. And just the way he, Sam lays it out, absolutely incredible. And, you know, it's just, but there's so many books to talk about. We're going to have to come back and do another show. Yes. We're yes. going to have to, and when Steve finally understands that we can, like we should do a whole nother, a whole nother four hours of, the luckiest guy in the world and get into the other stuff that we didn't get into in the first four episodes, then uh, we've got a real chance here. So Steve, thank you. Tell Judy hello and tell Zach and the other two children hello or tell Zach hello and all the people that came to Austin. And what a fun time that was. And Steve hosted, Steve and his team hosted this really fun party and Lori and I got to go and it was just uh Something that uh, I will never forget. I am the luckiest guy in the world, and now that I found Jerry's middle finger, I have a chance at a full and complete life. Yes, and sir. with that, they're waiting for me. Oh my
2: gosh! Sorry. Throw it down, big man! I push out one girl. time, please.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Here we go, Bill. Throwing it down. The luckiest guy in the world. That's me.
2: Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you for Great, my life. Bill. Yes sir. Thank you for my life. This is Scooby Radio saying, you bring the coffee and I'll bring the Dunkin'. Come on. Hold up.